By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and, and so provide to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that my joy may be full. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You can be seated. And uh, while you're doing that, let me encourage you, if you brought a Bible with you or on some kind of device, that you would go to John chapter 15 as we continue in the Gospel of John. We've been working our way through John for several months now. And um, man, this, these few chapters are just simply incredible. Uh, all of God's words incredible. We're thankful for the Word of God, aren't we? Um, and it encourages us, it corrects us, it comforts, comforts us in so many ways. And John 15 and Luke 15 have got to be some of my favorite chapters in all of, all of Scripture. Um, we're in John 15 today. Now, I know we've got some kids in here with us. And I encourage you, kiddos, you got a little packet. I want you to listen to, um, we got some of you to draw and take notes. And I want you to do all those things. But I was just sitting there and I was looking at the kids around. And I was just reflecting back in my own journey how I distinctly heard God speak to me as a little kid. I remember four or five years old praying for someone. Um, part of our faith family there in uh, New Orleans was sick. And we were praying for them as a church. And I remember the Holy Spirit telling me, Something I'd never had before, you know, Luke, I'm going to heal them. Remember fourth or fifth grade, just hearing from God. And um, anyway, I encourage you kiddos in here, take notes, draw pictures, but listen for the voice of God that he speaks. As a matter of fact, Jesus himself said, unless we come as little children, we can't come. There's something about that faith of a child that draws us in. So... If you'll turn there uh, to John 15 and the passage. Now, a couple weeks ago, I started the beginning of John 15 um, when we were going through the I am statements of Jesus. And I'm not going to go back through those first several verses. And then I know Jason said we're getting to the Holy Spirit, and we are going to do that. Uh, next week, we're going to talk about the role of the Holy Spirit in our life through the end of 15 and chapter 16. But today, I want to focus really on those verses 8 um, through 17 many of which Kobe just read. The, chapter 15, if you'll look at it with me, starts out with, I am the true vine. Now remember the context. Jesus is talking to his disciples on the night before his death. And the next 24 hours is going to be unbelievably crazy as he's going to go to several mock trials. He's going to be beaten and scourged to such an extent that he's going to be unrecognizable. Um, not even the strength to carry his own cross. And then he's going to be hung on a cross for yours and for my sins. So this is the last few minutes. If you can imagine the things that you tell someone, even that you tell them when there's a, a possibility when you're going into a surgery or think of a soldier leaving to go into war. You're going to tell your wife or your husband, and you tell those closest to you, you're going to tell them some of the deepest. This is what I want you to remember. Please remember this. And he starts off with this idea that I am the true vine. Like there's a lot of false vines, and they don't provide any nutrients or any sustenance or any joy or any peace. As a matter of fact, the false vines, they reveal themselves because the only thing that they increase in you is anxiety, depression discouragement, unlasting anything. They just, they just lead to all of this. Jesus says, I'm the true vine, though. And when you're connected to the true vine, and he says it again, you know, like seven times in these 11 verses, remain in me, remain in me, abide in me, uses this word. And that's what we're jumping into. You know, we live in the South. For, where for a very long time, right, you gain societal influence through being a part of a church. Like you couldn't sell insurance in small town in the South unless you were part of some church. And so everyone kind of claims wholeheartedly. When we planted the church 10, 10 and a half years ago, the, there's a study that came out just a few months after we planted that named Shreveport as one of the most, uh, what do I say, the, the most Christian cities to live. 
But yet I'm looking at the brokenness of our city and I say, no, something's wrong here because what they really mean is that we're religious in the South. So how do you really know a true Christian from not a true Christian? I think Jesus tells us here in this passage that true Christians aren't just the ones that claim to be Christian or find their way to a church on a Sunday morning or have little fish symbols on their cars or some bad translation of Greek or Hebrew tattooed on themselves crosses even around our necks, names and membership books of churches. What, what does it mean to be a true Christian? All those other things can be good things, but Jesus warns us that there are going to be many that do even greater things than that, that at the end are not going to be part of, of his family in heaven. They'll be exposed on the day of judgment for having no real communion, no real relationship with Christ. So how do we know? What's the test that we would even give ourselves to see if our faith is actually real faith or just some kind of mechanical compliance in the culture that we live in? And Jesus says it here. See if you can pick up on it. Again in verse 8, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and I abide in his love. These things that I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. Verse 12, this is the commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love is no one than this, Jesus says, than someone that lays down his life for his friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant doesn't know what the master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I've heard from my Father, I've made known to you. You didn't choose me, but I chose you, and I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Pray with me, please. Father. Thank you for your word. May we apply it to our hearts. Holy Spirit, would you begin to illuminate the truth in us so that we would see it. And we would see you, Jesus, high and lifted up. And Jesus, that you would show us the Father. Where there's some pushback in our own hearts. Lord, show us truth. May we repent of the sin. The sin of unbelief. The sin of believing other things. The sin of trusting in false vines to bring real nutrients. For your glory and for your name, in your mighty name we pray, amen. So let me answer the question, what does the Christian look like? There's several more qualities in these. He names three in this, and I think these are broad enough that we could put most others under this, but he names love, obedience, and joy. What does it mean to be a Jesus follower? Love. That you understand the love of the Father and likewise you love others. Sacrificially and in an incredible way you love. There's this, you don't love perfectly, but increasingly. There's this growing nature of love inside of you. Love for God and love for others. Then obedience. This idea that Jesus says, if you really love me, then you're going to do what I'm asking you to do. You're going to do what I say. And then joy. And not just this little wishy-washy joy. Jesus says, my joy I give to you that your joy may be full. So let's look at those. Love, obedience, and joy. Now, uh, as I said before, not perfectly. We don't love perfectly like Jesus did. We're not going to obey perfectly like Jesus did. We're not going to have joy perfectly like he did. Not perfectly, but increasingly. That you should be able to ask your spouse or someone who knows you best on your darkest days, babe, am I increasing in love? Am I more loving today than I was when we met? Not just God or ethereally, but am I loving others, people who are far different from me? Am I loving others? Is my obedience to the word of God, is it growing? Is my trust in him really growing where I really feel like I can trust him? And then my my joy is, am I a more joyful person today? Because these are things that are not dependent upon circumstances, but increase as fruit, it says, connected to the true vine. These things as spiritual fruit are going to become more and more evident in your life. Paul, of course, would later elaborate on this in Galatians 5 with the fruit of the spirit of love and joy and peace. Several others. 
So what Jesus is saying here is when you abide in the vine, when you have a real connection to the Father through the work of Jesus and dwelt by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit is going to produce these things in your life. And they come like grapes on a cluster, not like apples on a tree. They come together. You can't be one that says, man, I am so full of love for God, but I don't have any love for other people. First John would say, no, you're a liar. You can't do that. Or you can't say, man, I'm full of love for God and love for other people, but I don't want to obey God's word. No, that, that, those two don't exist. Or I'm full of love and obedience, but man, I just don't have any joy. No, your lack of joy is showing that the Spirit is not working in your life. You have bypassed the real vine. And this is the danger, if you could hear anything from my heart today, I hope you can hear this. The danger in the West is we have bypassed real relationship with the Father, real abiding with Jesus. We've bypassed it for religious duty. I'm going to show up. I'm going to serve. I'm going to help. I'm going to encourage. I'm going to do these things. I'm supposed to do these things. And they become this mechanical compliance instead of this organic growth. Now, quick caveat, let me say this. Salvation is not earned by being more obedient and more loving and more joyful. Salvation is not earned. Those are fruits, evidence of a real heart transformed by the love of God. Salvation is by grace, grace alone. You didn't earn it. Through faith alone. It's not something that came from your parents. In Christ alone. It's not Jesus plus anything else. Grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. That's salvation. And then as we have developed that salvation, you're indwelt with the Spirit of God, capital S Spirit, Holy Spirit, comes to reside inside of you. And he's the one that is working in you to will and to do according to God's good pleasure, Philippians would tell us. So let's look at this first quality of love. You'll notice it. it it's second only to the word abide or remain. In this passage, I think I have some of these on there. Verse 9, as the fathers love me, so I love you. Abide in my love. In verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. 13, greater love is no one than this, than he laid down his life for his friends. 17, these things I command you, that you would love one another. Nine times in these five verses. And he's not through talking about it. He's going to talk about it a lot more. We're going to get to the next chapter and even chapter 17. He's going to talk so much about his love. And he's already talked so much about his love. If you go all the way back to John chapter 1 and John chapter 3, for God so loved the world. Jesus is reiterating and reminding the disciples because we need to hear it. That the Father God, that he loves us with this incredible love as demonstrated through the work of Jesus on the cross. First, notice the motivation for our love. Our loving God and loving others starts with the love of Jesus for us. Verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. With the same love that the Father loves his son Jesus, in perfection, he loves them. Jesus says, I've loved you that same way. We've been invited into this circle of divine love. Jesus includes it. As the fathers loved me, I love you. In his epistles later to be written, 1 John 3, I love this. See with what great love the Father has lavished upon us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. What manner of love the Father has loved us, that he has poured out this divine love on us while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Isn't that just the most incredible reminder this morning, church, that you don't have to perform for God's love? You don't, you don't have to use any Instagram filters. You don't have to show him only the, the, the best parts. I was telling him this early. I was listening to a, a Tim Keller sermon on John 13 of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. And we preached that on that a couple weeks ago. And I'm an auditory learner, so I cannot listen to someone preach on a topic before I preach on the topic. Or I will just preach their sermon, especially if they're great like Keller is. 
But one thing that I was just thinking about the love of God this morning, and I was listening to this sermon, and Keller points out that Jesus washed the disciples' feet, not their hands or their face. They were probably dirty too. As a manner to show us the way in which he loves us. You know, our feet are normally the most hidden parts about us. Maybe some of us would say the ugliest parts of us. The part at least that gets the least amount of attention. It's the part that not other many people have seen. And Jesus says, no, I want to wash your feet because I'm, I, want, I want to wash the real you, not the pretend part. And sometimes this is what we do when we come to a gathering like this is, is we just want to show our best parts. We want to smile big and we want to shake hands and I'm doing good brother or sister or whatever monikers we're using. And Jesus says, no, 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 I love the real you. I love you. You and all your anger and all your addiction, you and all your mess. I love you. What manner of love the Father has lavished upon us that we would be called children of God. Friends, love is not something that we force. It comes from the overflow of God's love for us. This is why it's our motivation. Because our identity is dearly loved children of the Most High King that we can love as he has loved us. And then he says there, the end of verse 9, I love this, abide in my love. Stoke the fires of the love of God for you. This is what takes work. Maybe your translation says, remain in my love. How do we remain in the love of God? Again, it's not performing. It's not by doing all the things. It's doing whatever it takes for your heart to remember the love of God for you. For some people, it's just doodly getting into the word of God. And that's great, but that's, that's not mine. When, when I read the word of God, sometimes I really feel the love of God for me, but most times it just feels like work. It just feels like something I know I need to do and I'm going to do and I've disciplined myself to do. But for most times when I get up in the morning and I sit on the couch and I have a cup of coffee in my hand and I open the word of God and I take a deep breath and I gotta just, we just, we just got to get into it. And slowly sometimes the love of God comes through. But you know how I abide in the love of God? How I stoke the fire of God's love for me so that it would be in front of me and I would remember it? It's the beach. I just love the beach. And I don't care what kind of beach either. Everybody says, oh, don't go to Galveston. I'll go there in a heartbeat. I'll go to any beach. I'll go to Mississippi. You know, Louisiana has beaches. They're not beaches that anyone really goes to visit. But just standing at the, at the edge of the beach and looking out this vast ocean, it, every time I do it, I just, it just happens. I go in and I watch the sunrise. And I'm just, my heart is exploding with the love of God for me for some I just, I hear him speak this truth over me. I feel like I'm communing with him. Sometimes it's great worship music. If you ever pass me on the, in, on the road and I'm just like going to town, I'm probably not on the phone. I am just, I am just, I'm just worshiping and I'm moving across lanes. It's okay. Just, you know, that's my pastor. Give me a little honk honk. I'll come to, I'll get in my lane. How do you abide in the love of God? Listen, this takes work for you to remember how much God loves you. We are in the world, and the world is not of him. And if we're not careful, we are being discipled by everything else in the world that, ex that, that, that exclaimed, it proclaims to us that, that you feel loved and accepted in every other way possible. And if you're not careful, it just kind of fades from your heart. The love of God fades from your heart. When our kids were in Ashley's womb, we would play how deep the Father's love for us. We played it for our kiddos over and over. And I'm, I'm not sure what, what we were hoping that they would hear. I'm sure you can't hear very good in those. So they, I, don't think they, I don't think they heard that. But it was this incredible reminder for Ashley and I, and that's what we prayed. God, would, would, they, would you open their eyes of faith that they would know how radically loved they are by their creator? It's nature, going walking in nature helps me just remind myself and stoke the fire of God's love for me. Solitude and silence, a great story. Talking about the goodness of God with some of my friends. I love that this morning, Jason. We had a little impromptu uh, class this morning and Jason just kind of shared his heart and we just kind of discussed the foundation 
of God's love for us. And it, it stoked the fire of God's love for me, just having those kind of honest conversations, laughing together or weeping together or serving together. There's not a time that I don't leave serving the hub on a Sunday night where I don't want to text everyone who sacrificed and worked so hard to get there because I know Sunday nights are a terrible time and we all got all these things, and yet there's always a few faithful that show up and serve. And I want to text them and just like pour my love out for them, the Father's love in me to them. It's just... It's, oh, I just feel the Father's love. In church, we are foolish if we think that you, that's not something that you have to stoke in your own heart. This is why Jesus says this. You know cognitively that God loves you. The disciples know that. Jesus has told them that multiple occasions. And yet he tells them here to the disciples, minus Judas who had already left, he tells them, the eleven gathered around the table, hey, friends, abide in my love. Remember my love for you. can't explain it it's just the love of God welling up inside inside of me and we have to find whatever that is for you do that and lots of that because we're in such a rush culture and what we can accomplish and how much we can get done very rarely do we take the time to remember the love of God for us on a daily basis Maybe at best it's when we gather together on a Sunday and we're reminded once again, oh, the Father does love me even though I'm walking through difficulty and I don't understand all that he's doing and if we're real honest, I'm a little mad at him right now or whatever it is and we bring all this to the table and we offer up a sacrifice of praise to him and we're reminded of his love for us. Whatever it is that stokes the fire of love from God and for God, do those things and lots of those things. If we're not careful, it'll just fade from us. Deuteronomy 4, God tells the people of Israel, watch yourselves closely and don't forget the things that your eyes have seen. This is the phrase that has just stuck with me all week as I've read this. Or let them fade from your heart. If we're not careful, the most important things in life, we make the smallest things in life. And the smallest things in life we make as they're the most important things in life. And they're just not. And God reminds his people way early on in the story, hey, friends, don't let these things fade from your heart. Because you're going to be living in exile. You're going to be living, you're going to be living in captivity. You're going to be living in your Babylon. And if you're not careful, you're going to rearrange your whole schedule to serve Babylon. And that's not the point. Yes, seek the welfare of the city. We should do that. Jeremiah tells us that. But we don't live for this city. We, we live for the city of God, right? Not the city of man. So his warning to us, and friends, man, I pray that you would hear this. Don't let the love of God fade from your heart. Remember how incredibly much God loves you. Last week, Ashley uh, came with me um, to serve in Napa. We all gathered in Napa to do a church, uh, church planters kind of little conference and encourage them. We had 40 church planters show up from all over the U.S. and Mexico and Cuba. It was incredible. But Ashley and I had, we went a little early. We had like two days together with no kids, and I so love my kids, and no church business, and I, I, love, I love our church. We had nothing to do just to be with each other. And married couples, you know you need that every once in a while, right? And so I had to fly Ashley back home. I still had two more days of work, and I'm taking her to the airport on early Monday morning, and we're both like, we're both crying in the car because she's fixing to get out and go home, and I got to stay here and work. And I'm like, what is this? We've been married 20 years. You know, I didn't see you four days last week because our schedules just kept passing. And we didn't even, no, no tears were, no, were shed. And she said, well, I, I guess that's good that we still love each other. <laughs> it is, yes. But, you know, the danger, the danger is you just get co-parenting or coexisting, just doing all the things together. You remember that? And I remember looking at, at, at Ashley that morning as we drove and we're, Drinking coffee. Now, you know, the, setting, the setting doesn't hurt things. We're in Napa. We're driving through the mountains. We're having incredible coffee. I just remember looking over at her and just thinking, and this, she might kill me for this. She probably won't. I just remember thinking, oh, there, that's the, there's the woman I married. There she is again. 
because I'd been looking at her with the lens of all the other things, of doing the things and taking the kids here and there and working hard. And, you know, if you, 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 we, we're catching up 15 minutes at the end of the day and we're both tired and falling asleep on the couch. It's just good to go over and remind you, oh, oh that's the woman I fell in love with. And, and, and this, is what, this is what Jesus is trying to get to the disciples. Don't let this faith from your heart abide and remember the love. It's the very thing that one of the letters, right, to the churches in Revelation that he charges them with, the church at, you, you, the church at Ephesus, you've, you've, you've left your first love. You've forgotten this. You're doing all the good things. You've got good doctrine. I mean, you're just calling out people for evil. You're taking a stand. You're not bowing down to anybody. You're, you're, man, you are killing it. But you've forgotten to love me. He says, you, the charge I have against you, Jesus would say to the church, is you've left your first love. The apostle Paul would go on to say this to the church, like, man, you church, you are killing it. You are speaking in tongues and prophesying here and there, and you're doing the incredible things. What does he say? But if you don't have love, you've got nothing. And this is an indictment on my heart. Even I studied this week because we make, even in our little tribe at Covenant Church, we're doing some incredible things, man. I mean, we are serving the poor. We are planting churches. We're, we just got an award just a couple of weeks ago for the number of churches that we planted in our first 10 years. We're being recognized for this. Some of you guys are so, so sharp with your doctrine and you're putting it all over Facebook, all your, your doctrine and where you stand. And it's those great. But I feel like it would be a very similar letter written to us as a church. Covenant, you are doing so many things good, but you've, you've lost your first love. You're doing it as like this mechanical response instead of this true vine connection where the love of God is being poured into us and it is just overflowing from us onto everyone who gets around us. I think we've lost our first love. Friends, don't let that fade from your heart. And that leads to the next point of the love of God in us and abiding in that love leads to loving others. He says it so many times in this passage. Go back again to John 13 as he had said that we would love each other. This teaching would have been so radical and so countercultural. You've heard this before, that there's several Greek words for love. We've talked about this. There's phileo love, that's like the brotherly love. Think of like a, a fraternity. We're gathering around, we're celebrating the good times, we're watching a game. We have something in common. When you remove the thing that we have in common, there's no more love, right? That's why you leave fraternities and you go do about your own thing and you think, man, that was a good dude. But that's about it, that's phileo love. It's easily broken, it's not really deep, it rallies around a common interest. And then there's eros, which is erotic love, the romantic love that maybe you would love your spouse with. It's still conditional. And it's, it's based upon I'll love you well as long as you love me well. It's contractual, it's eros love. But Jesus didn't use that, he uses the word agape here, that we would love each other with agape, supernatural, unconditioned, without limit kind of love. That God loves us this way, and if you can imagine a vessel, and you're pouring the vessel, and then we just overflow in everyone else, the love of God through us to the, to the rest of the world. Supernatural love. And when Jesus uses this word, it wasn't really used in, 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 in modern times very well. The Christians would take this word and adapt it the non-Christians would take this word and adapt it to describe the way that the church loved each other. Because it was so foreign. No one, no one ever did this. No one ever knew this. This picture of agape love. It comes from the kind of love, the Greek word, agapeo, came from the Greek word that was used for the way a mom would sacrificially love her children. We kind of get that, right? How a mom would love her children. How she wakes up and cares for them and changes all the diapers and gets them. I mean, just this sacrificial. I was having lunch with Dave this week and over Dave's right shoulder, right behind us, was a mom with two special need kids. They were both immobile, didn't have use of their hands or legs. They needed a lot of care. I kept staring at this mom serving these two little 
boys. Her food's ordered there going cold, and she's just with little bitty small bites. And Dave kept saying, what are you looking at? What are you looking at? It just, it just overwhelmed me, just the love that this mom has for these two and how much care it took and how much she was selflessly loving them. And so the non-Christians of the day, before then the Christianity was just called the way, and then it began to call, be called the way of love, the way of agape, because that makes sense. A mom would love kids that way. A dad would love her, his kids that way. That makes sense. But the Christians were loving strangers that way. Far different from them. Even their enemies. This was enemy love. Agape love. And it changed the world. Here's a, a good definition for us to to use for this agape love, actively securing the good of another at cost to yourself without requiring merit or demanding payment. And if you take notes, I wish you would write that down. Not because I came up with it because I didn't. I borrowed it from someone else. But I love the way that it describes the agape kind of love that Jesus is saying, as I've loved you, actively secured your good at cost to myself without requiring any merit or demanding any payment for you. That's the kind of love I'm going to love you with. While, we, while you were still sinners, Christ died for us, right? That's the kind of incredible love of God for us and should be the incredible love of God for us through us to actively secure the good, not just wanting good or desiring good, but to look actively securing the good, not just saying I wish them well, of another, not simply you, not simply your own nuclear family, but of other people. We could take this even to mean for the love of stranger. It would be used in the Greek by Jesus a lot. At cost to yourself. Something that costs you deeply. Something you have to change your life or your plans in order to make happen. Without requiring merit or demanding payment. That you don't just show love or display love so that others see you. You don't just love the people who can love you back. That's not real love. That's really self-love. I'm going to deposit a little love in you so that it would come inside you and then you're going to love me back. I'm not really loving you. I'm really loving myself. I'm just loving myself through you. That's not what he's saying. Actively securing the good of another at cost yourself without requiring merit or demanding payment. inconveniencing yourself for the good of someone else. That's the picture of agape love. And that's what the Christians were known for. People from different cultures, from different backgrounds, with different languages. People that they were taught to hate. You know, we've talked about this before, the Jews hated the Samaritans. And yet on frequent occasion, Jesus made the Samaritan the hero of the story. That they were more like Jesus, the Samaritan and the hero of the story that Jesus is telling, than their own Jews were. And it was just scandalous to even talk about them. Remember, the Samaritans were the ones that the disciples wanted Jesus to call down fire and burn to a crisp. Which is, you know, which is just, just, just being real. Like, they, they, they hated them. Think about the people that you hate. Maybe we wouldn't say hate. Think about the people who are the hardest for you to love. That you've got some inherent prejudice for, maybe. Maybe the Muslims or the Taliban. Maybe those who kneel at a national anthem. Think, think about whoever it is. Really, if we're being real honest, when, when, when you see this or news reports, you just, just well up just this hatred in your heart. Maybe it's the people wearing the mask or not wearing the mask or getting the vaccines or not getting the vaccines. Maybe it's the Republicans or the Democrats or... Maybe it's the Dallas Cowboys or their annoying fan base, whatever it is. You know the point. I am one of those. It's okay. Think of the people that are the hardest for you to love. Think about them in your mind. And then hear Jesus say, that's who I want you to love. And everyone else in between. Because it's not your love that you're loving, with them, loving them with. It's the supernatural love of God poured in you, overflowed out of your own heart onto other people. It is impossible, friends, to fake that. You're just not going to fake it. Eventually, what's in your heart is going to come out of your mouth, Jesus says. You just can't fake that kind of love. And Jesus says, this is the manner at which I want you to love others, the same manner at which I loved you, overflowing out of you onto others. And friends, this is what the church has missed, our church including. Me included. 
We don't love like this. You know who we love? People who are lovely. You know who we love? We, we, we think love is, 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 is we, we love people out of convenience and out of comfort. We let feelings dictate who we love and how we love, and that is always the wrong posture. And we're learning as a church, we're learning this now more than ever. More division in the church in the West than I ever remember. Broken relationships, broken trust, broken confidence. Anytime you see division, the enemy is always at work. This is where you see him rear his head, even in the first story. Division between them and God. Did God really say that? Did God really mean that? And then between them and each other. Adam, what happened? It was her fault, God. That dang woman you gave me made me go up there and eat that fruit. Anytime you see division, know that the enemy is at work. Now listen, in this cultural moment, I'm not telling you that you can't take a stand. If you feel really con a real conviction from God about the mask or wear the mask or don't, or the vaccines or don't, I'm not saying that. Man, start your campaigns. If it's a hill you're willing to die for, post it on Facebook, rally the troops. And I mean that with all authenticity in my heart. But here's the deal. But the minute that you villainize the other side of your argument, you've left the table of love. No more love. Anytime you villainize through this past election, people in this church saw you post online, Oh, man, if you voted for the Republican, there's no way you love God. If you voted for the Democrat, there is no way you're a Christian. That makes me so mad I want to cuss from this stage. I'm not going to do it because my mom's in the room. <laughs> but if she wasn't. Friends, that is not the love of God. It pours in us and out of us. That's what it means to be God's people. It's not just necessarily what we say we believe. It is the love of God. You know what Jesus said? They're going to know you're my disciples by your love for the world. We don't love like that. And because of that church, we don't see any power. We're not, seeing, we're not, we're not taking a stand in culture like we're supposed to. We're just going along with culture, just like culture. We're having the same arguments culture's having. We're loving people like culture's loving them. Lord, forgive us for being more American than we are Christian. This is a, what kind of letter would Jesus write our church? I, I would be scared to death to read it. Friends, supernatural agape love is not loving out of convenience and comfort. As a matter of fact, if it's convenient and comfortable, it's not agape love. Anybody loves like that. Our motive is love. The way the Father has loved us, so we're to love others. That's our motive. And we don't have to jumpstart this thing. God's already done it. He started it in us. The Holy Spirit's working in us right now. And he is cultivating as, as the potter in the clay. And he's ripping out things that are just still carnal and fleshly. And he's remaking the image. And then he finds a little weakness in there. Oh, it's got to come out too. Ripping that and then remaking. Here in this passage, earlier on, it says that he prunes. Things that are already developing, he prunes. You know what that means? There's no discipleship without hardship. There's just, just not, not a thing. He's going to prune those things out of our life. Our motive is love. Our action then is obedience. Not the way you feel, but the way you live your life. We're not going to go real deep into this. Jason talked about this even, uh, even last week. But what does Jesus say? If you love me... You're going to obey my commandments. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love, just as I have kept the Father's commandments, and I abide in his love. Verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. This is not a divine suggestion, friends. The commandment of God to us, to love others as he's loved us. And he didn't love us when it was comfortable and convenient. It wasn't convenient. It left the glory of heaven to come and love us that way. It's not comfortable. He was hung on a cross for, for our sins, not for his own. To love in that kind of way. Says it again, verse 17, these things I command you that you love one another. Obedience. If you keep my commandments, you're going to abide in my love. Again, he says this several other times in this passage. Our motive is love, but the action is obedience. 
Obedience isn't just, man, I just got to do everything that God says. What obedience reveals is this deep trust in who God is. And that he loves me perfectly, and he only wants what's best for me, and so I'm always going to follow what he asked me to do. A lot of times when people are kicking the tires on Christianity, they'll say, well, well, pastor, if I become a Christian, does that mean I have to stop, uh, you know, having, having intercourse with my girlfriend or boyfriend outside of marriage? Does that, does that mean I, 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 I got to quit doing all these things? Or is this a long list of things that I can't do anymore? That's what I got to give up all that to come? And you miss Christianity. That's what Christianity is. You come to God as you are, and he's going to make you miserable in all those things because he knows they're not what's best for you, and he only wants what's best for you. He only wants what's best for you. And so my obedience to him is just loving him. You say, well, pastor, that's, that's legalism. No, that's so far from it. I believe that God made me, and he knows me more intimately than I even know myself, and he loves me perfectly and with more passion and heart than anyone on this planet ever will. How foolish would it be not to trust a heavenly father that knows me like that and loves me perfectly? Friend, you can trust him. You can trust what his word calls us to do. We can love like that. He's not trying to keep us from having fun. He's trying to position me in the right place for my flourishing. Jesus here connected true discipleship with obedience to his command and honoring his word. Jesus says, in the same way that I fulfilled this in regard to the Father, I'm asking you to fulfill this by obeying my commandments. What Jesus was doing and teaching in that upper room was emphasizing the commandments of Jesus to love each other, to serve each other sacrificially, and to trust the love that God has for you. Love is our motive. Obedience is the action. Finally, the posture is joy. Look at this. I know we're out of time. Our posture is joy. I love this in verse 11. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. I love this. Jesus gives us his joy and not even a little bit of it. He says, I'm going to give you so much joy. Remember the pouring in the vase, overflowing. I'm going to give you so much joy that it's just going to overflow everywhere. Everywhere you go, people are going to wonder, what is, that's a weird dude. Why, that's a weird gal. Why, why do they have so much joy? The joy of Jesus isn't the same as what we, you know, it's not happiness, it's not necessarily excitement. Jesus wasn't excited to go to the cross. The joy of Jesus is not the pleasure of a life of ease or exhilaration on experiences. It's being right with God and consciously walking in God's love and care. This is what it says as they started this discourse in John 13, that Jesus arose, remember, knowing from where he came and to where he was going, the right identity, the right foundation, allowed him to love and serve and obey and have this fullness of joy. Joy is not this giddy bliss like a little kid opening up a present on their birthday. Joy, and you might not write this down because this is just so good, it's a settled peace that God is in control and I can trust him in every situation. When Jesus talked about his joy, there was no disciples. Thaddeus went over there like, Jesus, what are you talking about, joy? It was understood. Everyone, when Jesus said, hey, I give you my joy, they all understood. Exact. Jesus carried himself with such a settled peace and confidence in the work of the Father that he could sleep on the bottom of a boat when the hurricane was about to destroy it. That's joy. To the disciples, it seemed entirely natural that the master would make reference to his joy or his gladness in God. We see that the joy of Christ was something that they were perfectly familiar with. is one of the things that stood out against the backdrop of the entire culture in which he lived. He closes the passage this way. Verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask in the Father, ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. These things I command you that you love one another. 
Look at that last thing. These things I command. What are these things? What things? All the things that he's been saying. Specifically, loving others, obeying from the heart, living a life of real joy by abiding in the vine. Friends, the fruit matters. It really does matter. The fruit is a result of God working inside you to change you. Supernatural change is greater than religious compliance. And supernatural change is something that you don't produce. It's something the Spirit produces in you. This is why a lot of us don't really understand the gospel very well. The gospel is inside out. Jesus took our place on the cross and accomplished salvation for us, which we freely receive as a gift. Traditional religion says that if we do good deeds and follow all the rules, modify our external behavior, then God's going to come into our heart and bless us and give salvation. We've earned it. That's what religion says. If I obey, God's going to love and accept me. But that's not the gospel. The gospel's opposite, reverse of this. If I know in my heart that God has accepted me just as I am, he loves me freely by his grace, then I can begin today out of inner joy and gratitude to obey. Religion outside in, the gospel inside out. By grace alone, through faith alone, and the works of Christ alone. We are beautiful and righteous in God's sight by the work of Christ. And when we really gain this understanding, it revolutionizes how we relate to God, how we even love ourselves, and certainly how we love others. This is why the gospel is greater than the law. Read all of Romans, Paul's making this point, but for sake of time today, the law told God, uh, the, law, the law of God told people not to lie. But the gospel transforms their heart to be a heart of integrity, so they don't even have to have the law anymore. The law told people they needed to help the poor, to care for the orphan, to attend to the widow. But for the person changed by the gospel, they don't need the law to tell them to do that. They are actually becoming a generous and humble person because the Holy Spirit is working inside them. The law says that we shouldn't envy, but the gospel heart has the fruit of contentment right where we are. Do you see how this is working? This is not outside in. This is inside worked out. This is not one of those sermons where you leave and say, man, I have just got to go work on my loving and my obeying and my joyous heart. Like you're going to give yourself a pep talk when you leave the house every morning. Luke, you better be joyful today. I know that Jason, he's so tough to work with, but be joyful. No, if anything, if you hear anything from my heart today, friend, is run back to Jesus. Connect to the true vine. Do whatever it takes to stoke the fire in your own heart of the love of God for you. Because that, in turn, is going to help you love others the way that he loved us. I love, I love this too, that he just, let me throw this in there. In 16, he says, you did not choose me. I love this because he's just saying, disciples, you, you can't boast in your own intellect and wisdom and say you chose the right guy. You didn't even choose me, I chose you. And you can't boast in your own strength and power because everything good that comes in your life, as he says here in verse uh, 16, 16, is going to be a, a response to prayer. You can't boast in your intellect and wisdom. You can't boast in your own strength and power. Then what can you boast in? The cross of Christ. If this pandemic has shown us anything, is that the church is not as connected to the vine as we'd hoped. As the pressure is mounted, as life has squeezed us, what's inside us has been revealed of what our hope is really in. What do we ooze out of our lives when pressure increases? I pray that it's love and obedience and joy. Friends, my encouragement is to run to Jesus. We're going to finish with communion as we often do. And there's this great verse, and we didn't elaborate on it in verse 13. Jesus says, I love this. In the middle of all him talking about this, he says, you know what? Greater love is no man than this. And he laid down his life for his friends. And I'm sure all the disciples were like, yeah, Jesus, of course. That's like the, that's like the great love, but who's going to do that? And I don't know when it hit them. I don't know if it hit them later when they were at the, at the empty tomb or when they're gone back fishing there around the charcoal fire. I don't know when it hit them, but 
At some point, I really believe it, it did. They, they remembered these things. Oh, remember that time that Jesus said greater love is no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. Oh, this is what he meant. Luke, what's the manner of love that I should love other people? Supernatural love, unconditional love, at great cost to yourself, willing to lay your own life down for them. That's the love of God. And this is what we remember in communion. Again, this is not something we can fake. You're not going to muster up the courage to go love someone you hate like that. No. But this is the love of God in you. And if you'll stay connected to the true vine, he'll display this spiritual fruit. So we remember this through communion. Jesus, when he gathered with the disciples, said, when you gather, I want you to do this in remembrance of me. To remember how much I loved you to the point of death, even death on a cross. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you for your grace. Lord, I pray in some poor, (laughs) as you even say, through the foolishness of preaching, men would come to faith. I pray through the foolishness of this preacher, Lord, that people would see your love for them. Holy Spirit, Would you do your supernatural work even as we talk just to overwhelm the hearts that are listening online or at home or on podcast or even in the room with the very love of God for us? Who are we? That you would love us in such a scandalous and radical way. And Father, as we prepare to take communion, Jesus, to remember your death on the cross, the shedding of your blood for the remission, for the forgiveness, for the payment of my sin. I pray that all the more stokes the fire of God in my heart, in our hearts, that we would go and love a world that is desperate to be loved. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. If you're new here,